Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hello, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and this is a very spooky episode of Totally 80s. <laughs> Today we are going to talk about a musical and pop culture movement very near and dear to my cold black heart, and that's goth music, also sometimes known as dark wave or death rock. But before we get started, I've got to remind you to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, and to visit our website, totally80s.com, for tons of news and stories about our favorite decade. And if you love our podcast as much as we love you, you'll give us a nice review and subscribe. Today is joining with me, Hazriel Abyss. Oh my God. (laughs) I was just about to drop a goth talk (laughs) reference and you beat me to it. We are the same person. I know. My spooky (laughs) co-host. Cersei Nightshade. The immortal John Hughes. Hey, from your lips. I wish Goth Talk was a real show. And we're going to try to maybe make it into one today. Right. So that was, that I was basically the Molly Shannon character growing up in that skit. Um, but it's interesting before, that was Goth Talk. We use the word Goth, as I mentioned at the top of this. Goth is a term that I don't actually remember from when I was a kid. No. We said death rock, which I only realize now as an LA native, is kind of was actually a sort of subset and was yeah. a kind of more like horror driven thing and a very LA thing, by the way. Yeah. The band The Mountain Goats do a whole album that came out two years ago called Goths. Huh. That's totally about that scene. But let's try to define what goth is because a lot of bands like The Cure, they eschew the term. If you call them goth, they're not happy about right. it. Right, Susie and the Banshees. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, not you, really. Uh, bands like Community of K and Specimen probably embrace the term, but a right. lot of the bands that became, that I consider goth, or at least, you know, a goth adjacent, uh, they don't really like the term because I think the term, I, I think the genre in its day did not really get a lot of critical respect and people now no. look at it as this jokey thing like the goth talk skit or kids that go to Hot Topic and right. dress like Marilyn Manson. But I think it was a legitimate thing. I think people see it more as a fashion thing than a musical thing. So what is goth? Well, it, it, it was really uh, in the Midwest, at least, we were called New Wavers. Mm. And it was that's a very, very broad, very term. broad term. And it was basically anything that's weird outside the mainstream uh, gelled hair. Uh, we all bought uh, the same jet black hair dye and dyed our hair at the same time. It worked <laughs> out for some people with darker complexions than I. For me, I look like the living dead. <laughs> that's a good um, thing. If you're, yeah, that's the look you're going, going for, for. If you're, yeah. And, you know, there were local bands in Cleveland, like Lestat. Ooh, yeah, nice name. Exactly. I appreciate that. 
And uh, so, I mean, Goth never really, no pun intended, died. No, no. It still lives. It's, it lives. It, and, you know, I know I joke about Goth talk and Azriel Abyss and everything, but whoever wrote that sketch, it's kind of lo- of a love letter to Goth and, and the kids that are into it because mm-hmm. the poor, poor Azriel's put upon by his jock older brother. And, uh, you know, he mm-hmm. still has to go work at the Cinnabon, even, you know, <laughs> As even, braces. Exactly. So that clash with his Robert Smith messy lipstick. Yeah, so well, that, I, that's, it's an interesting thing though. We were joking. We started off by talking about Goth talk as a joking thing, but um, it did in a very serious way way nail it in that goth was largely a suburban phenomenon yes uh you know white middle class um if you know i grew up in the san fernando valley in la and it was like a lot of teen angst but it was a very suburban thing and it was a very la thing if you grew up here which i always thought was interesting because uh and we had great bands like 45 grave and community fk because you think of the suburbs as being sunny and happy Mm -hmm. pleasant valley sunday you certainly think of la suburbs that way but a lot of you know these kind of middle class you know, or upper middle class suburban teens, they really connected with this kind of over the top macabre, right. you know, angsty drama of it all. And I think there's a myth and it was a myth that sort of came up even around the time of the Columbine shootings is that, I mean, my parents used to be concerned that I like this music. Like, are you OK? Mm-hmm. It was like the suicidal tendency. We're afraid we're going to hurt someone <laughs> or we're afraid you're going to hurt yourself because I was walking around, you know. In, in dressed in all black, mm-hmm. black hair, black lipstick, you know, getting into these bands that had very dark imagery or very sad imagery. And, you know, Robert Smith always sounded like he was crying, yeah. you know. And I'm like, I'm actually not that sad. I just really somehow I'm attracted to the drama and mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the theater of it all. And the lyrical content was not as nihilistic as people no. would imagine or the cliche is. And I th- have to wonder, I'm sure there's a connection. There has to be from like the gothic novel tr- uh, craze in the early 70s, you mm-hmm. know, where here's the woman that's been invited to be the governess at this mysterious castle that has one single solitary light on at the top of the, yeah. of the, uh, of the castle and she's running away on the cover from this castle in fear and you know far too much into this dark shadows uh but that's what goth was really about was the over dramatic romanticizing of this thing i think if you grew up in the suburbs uh where your life might have been kind of boring Mm -hmm. this escapism of things that seemed you know immortal and scary and spooky right. and glamorous and there is a through line from the books you talk about to the in- interview with the vampire books mm-hmm. of the 80s and 90s through the twilight series through all the way to uh actually i some people i've talked to low tollers from the cure and he sort of bristles when i say this but i completely see a through line between um the stuff the whatever you want to call it post-punk dark wave goths death rock stuff of the 80s and the emo movement completely yeah. particularly with bands why like is, you know my chemical romance why do you think he doesn't like that connection i would because think- much like the term goth music in the 80s and 90s the term emo also gets a bad rap both of them sort of have this cliche of people in eyeliner whining People in eyeliner and strange hair whining about their lives. <laughs> but you know what? What's wrong with that? Yeah. Suburban boys need an, and girls need an outlet, too. And I did a lot of whining listening to the, you know, like I said, Robert Smith sounded like he was crying all the time. But it didn't really get uh, a good uh, rep at the time. But I see it in everything. I see it in, you know, uh, even when bands start coming up in the in the aughts, like, you know, Interpol and yeah. the Killers, you know, I saw anything that was and the emo stuff, especially MCR. 
you definitely saw, I mean, The Cure, of course, I think were probably the most influential band of the time, but mm-hmm. I do, I do want to talk, and we talk a lot about The Cure on the show, so I, I definitely want to make sure we start by talking about a th- uh, probably a band, if you even want to call them goth, and we could spend this entire podcast debating, like, it would be like a, a game show. Is it goth? <laughs> or is it goth or is not? Is it goth? Goth or not? Okay, well, let me ask you this. Goth or not? Joy Division. Uh they would probably say hell no. They all would say hell no. Right. But you look at the video for Atmosphere that Anton Corbin did. Uh, and yeah. The nihilistic lyrics. Uh, right. And of course, the sad She's legacy. control. The sad legacy yeah. of, of, of course, uh, Ian Curtis, you right. know, the very macabre way in which he went out. Now, 1982, 1983. Absolutely. That was and I, goth music, air quotes. Uh, and that was considered uh, such because especially because their album sleeves had no imagery other than of the band. So you had to invent uh, a mythology around it. You just had that cover, uh, you know, of unknown pleasures, which, you know, now is a target. But at the time it was, oh, I'm going to listen to this and this is matching my mood and I hate my parents and I hate my job at Cinnabon. I mean, I'm, they certainly weren't a cheerful band. No. Well, let's talk about a band that I think we all can agree. I th- hopefully even they would agree because, I mean, they were in the friggin opening scene of a vampire movie called The Hunger. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Bauhaus were gone. There ain't no way around that. Bella Lugosi. He's dead is the theme song for Goth Talk. And it yeah. is the actual theme song they use for Goth Talk. There you go. Uh, and, and yeah, and again, poor. I don't know how do you, you've probably talked to them. How do they feel about that song being the absolute cliche when talking about goth? Um, I've never I have talked to them, but never about that specifically. I would imagine the fact that when Bauhaus in one of the few reunions they've done, when they played Coachella in 2005, mm-hmm. I don't know. If it's my favorite Coachella moment of all time. They opened their set. Opened their set with Bela Lugosi's Dead. Ooh, they did not close the with it. They got they didn't just get it out of the way. Peter Murphy descended from the rafters or the scaffolding or whatever above the outdoor stage, upside down. Oh, like a bat. <laughs> in a bat jacket. Oh, my God. Like in a straight jacket, like a, a restrictive uh, jacket. He sang upside down the whole song. That song's like 11 minutes long. Yeah. it's I don't even know, like, from just a pure technical breath control how you could sing wow. hanging upside down. But hanging upside down, singing all of Bela Lugosi's Dead in bat mode, my guess is they don't disavow the song. I guess not. They're pretty proud of it. They should. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they're obviously such descendants from David Bowie and they were, mm-hmm. you know, in this vampire movie with him. And that's one of the most iconic goth moments ever. Like vampire, you know, violence happening around them. One night stands, slashing of throats, all stylized. And Peter Murphy in a frigging cage. You're right. Singing Bella Lugosi's Dead. That's, I mean, this is a band that just reunited in the end of 2019 to do three mm. shows in LA. I went to all three, by the way. Oh, nice. Um, and there, everyone was in black. Mm. I actually wore a white outfit because I want someone to be able to find me. I'm like, <laughs> I'll be the one in white. I'm going to be standing off to the left. You found me right away. I might as well have been wearing like a lantern on my head. 
but you know, the aesthetics were there. But the thing that was interesting about the Bauhaus show is I looked around and I mean, people were so excited, you know, Bauhaus hadn't played since 2006. Mm -hmm. We don't know if they're ever going to play again. They don't get along so well. This might be, you know, there's no other dates as of the time we're recording this podcast, no other dates announced. Peter Murphy left the stage after doing third uncle uh, as their encore and said, that's it. We're never fucking playing again. Oh, wow. Unless you give us a lot of money. I'm like, how much you want? Uh, <laughs> I'll pay you. But what I was going to say was everyone was so excited, but it was not a young audience. There are, I mean, I guess that wouldn't surprise you, but there are certain bands of the 80s, The Cure, Depeche Mode, yeah. where you do see a more diverse audience. Right. This was solidly Gen X. Really? There was no one there under 35. I, I wonder if that's because nobody's picked up their legacy, you know, on a label level and kept them in the eye and I mean, got them in the movies. Or... I mean, all of their reunions have been, you know, ex- really a big deal. And, you know, like the Coachella moment was so iconic, but I feel like there's more people that have much like Joy Division, I would actually say that have T-shirts by them. Yeah. Yeah. Or like a Ramones, you know, the, the T-shirts are ubiquitous, but name a song besides I want to be sedated. I dare you. But that, well, I could, but yeah, that's but another yeah, podcast. You, right. um, but the, when I said at the top of this podcast, I posed the question, is it more a fashion thing? When people think goth, I think mm-hmm. the legacy of the fashion thing, even on the racks at Hot Topic or whatever, I see the word goth get used a lot of time. And they're really referring to the fact that you're wearing all black or spiky clothes. Or fetish wear. Or sooty eyeliner yeah. as yeah. opposed to the music because the music is diverse. But it was interesting to me. I wonder, I feel like goth, whatever you want to call it is very specifically tied to Gen X. It's like, mm-hmm. basically, if you were a goth person, you grew up in the 80s, pretty much. Yeah. And it, with the exception of the few of the bands, The Cure being the most obvious one, I don't feel like it's really made its way. It's made its way into the culture, uh, fashion-wise, but I don't know if a lot of these bands, like Bauhaus or Specimen or Sisters of Mercy, right. yeah. or... Um, Community of K, of course, Mission, you know, even the damned, like when people think of the damned, if you talk to a younger person, a millennial or Gen Z person, if on the off chance they know anything about the damned, they're going to know about the punk stuff from the 70s. They're not going to know about that phantasmagoria age, which I, of course, know because they performed on the young ones in that mode. But I'm wondering why this music, the influence is there on so many younger bands, but I don't think people really, the, the movement in general it's not like the punk movement where people remember and can name check all the bands. No. And like you said, the most uh, mainstreaming uh, of that culture has come from like jewelry, you know, nose rings and eyebrow rings. Those things were like lip rings. They were unheard of back in the day. And people that did that were super extreme. And now, you know, it's it's more uh more uh, shocking to like john waters says says not to have a tattoo or a piercing the style has evolved though there is a video on youtube called the evolution of goth and there's a thing called pastel goth which to me just sounds like an oxymoron but it's these people are goth and they do look spooky and kind of like um you know hot topicy i guess but they're they were in pink yeah and lavender could you imagine hot topic Back in the day? Honestly, I shop at Hot Topic now. I have no shame. But w- when we were doing this- I need we my, had, a Billie Eilish t-shirt. That's where I go. But we had to- And she's kind of goth, by the she way. She is. If we I, had to hunt for this stuff, though. You had to go to secondhand stores. You had to go to like specialty shops, head shops. Well, perhaps the mainstreaming of the fashion thing it, it makes it that people no longer- Maybe that's why the music isn't taken as seriously, yeah. because it's not shown. Anyway. Well, let's talk about the music. Absolutely. The, the Cure. 
The Cure, I mean, we could do a whole... That's the thing, is they don't want to be known as goth. And honestly, I don't know if they really stuck to that genre because, you know, the first thing I ever heard by them was Let's Go to Bed. That's a synth pop song. Their biggest hits are like love song. Um, Lyrically, though, I mean... before that, you have pornography, mm -hmm. which I would say is Charlotte Sometimes... video was filmed in a mental hospital, right. by the way. It's the gothiest goth, goth, Hanging gothy, gothy thing. Pretty Hanging goth. garden. I'm sorry, Robert Smith, if you're listening. Yeah. I really hope you are. But you're frigging goth, or at least used to be. He still rocks that look, too. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's not like they do have some cheerful songs. I do want to talk about one band, though, because um, I think everybody like pretty much knows about The Cure. I don't think we really need to educate people about The Cure. <laughs> I want to educate people about Specimen. Okay. Because if I could time travel anywhere... Anywhere in the history of the planet, I would go to the Batcave. The Batcave was a club which I discovered via the TV show on MTV called IRS is the Cutting Edge. Now, the Batcave, I never went there. I was too young and I didn't get to go to England. But in the mid 80s, this was a legendary club and it was formed by Specimen, the band who it did. Uh, most people wouldn't know many of their songs, but their hits, if you even want to call that, were The Beauty of Poison, which is a banger, and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I got to see them once at Fender's Ballroom in um, Long Beach, which no longer exists. I bought a very specific shirt from it. And I also have a baby doll that I grabbed off the stage, like a bloody, like covered in paint, <laughs> red paint baby doll. They were super horror, like comic book horror in right. their looks. They had spider. Their, their stage looked like basically like a party city, Halloween decorated, like you know, party. It had like cobwebs yeah. and dismembered baby dolls. And I have a t-shirt from it still that I've won most obscure t-shirt at my t-shirt Friday work contest. Everyone, Someone came in, they're like, hi, I got a Rilo Kylie shirt. on." I'm like, suck it. <laughs> Specimen t-shirt from a specific show in 1986 wow. at Fender's Ballroom. Where's my prize? Thank you for my Starbucks gift card, which I won. <laughs> but anyway, um, so the Batcave, was a death rock club or whatever they called it then. It was in London and they did a big expose on it on uh, IRS is the cutting edge. And it was a hangout like the members of Banshees, Bauhaus. Mark Allman used to hang out there all the time when Boy George wasn't at the Blitz Club, which we'll discuss on a new romantic podcast mm -hmm. some other time. Nick Cave used to hang out there. Uh, Robert Smith used to hang out there. So he was a goth. There you go. Card carrying goth if you all went right. to the Batcave. And uh, according to my research, Gary Glitter used to go there, too. Uh -oh. but, eh. Problematic. Problematic. But it was the <laughs> 80s and it was a simpler time. But it was this club that was like a hub of death rock in the 80s. And Specimen came out of it and they never quite got their due. Uh, they were a really important band to me, though. When you see the fact, even if they didn't have hits, when you see all the people who went to that club mm -hmm. in like 1984, 1985, you can see how they put their tethers out into the scene. If I could travel anywhere in time, it would be to the Batcave in 1985. Did you have goth clubs here? We did um, in, in L.A. LA. 
Um, some of them still exist. There was one called Helter Skelter. Mm-hmm. There was one. Um, I mean, there was there was a lot of dance clubs. It was more dance clubs like yeah. phases. There's one in L.A. now, which shows, again, that the scene continues. It's um, Adam Braven, who's in She Wants Revenge, a mm-hmm. band that's obviously very influenced by that goth uh, scene and were big and are still around, but had broken the early 2000s. Adam Braven, who's a great DJ, he does a club in L.A. on Tuesday nights. It is called Cloak and Dagger. I love it. It is a sp- not a speakeasy, but you have to be a member. And mm-hmm. it's not like you can anyone can be a member. It's not like you just buy a membership. You have to sort of be like grandfathered in or whatever. You have to have a membership. Um, you are not allowed to take photos inside. Mm. They have a photographer there who takes photos, of course, only in black and white. But you, <laughs> if you get your phone out, you know, and start taking a picture, they'll kick you out. Wow. And the most exciting thing about it is that you have to wear all black. Oh, dang. if you show up in white. Wow. Nope. Doesn't matter if you're trying to find someone inside. I've been there several times and I can't see shit when I go in. It's Ooh. it's so dark. Right. It's super dark and everybody's wearing black. What do they play? What does he play? Well, they play, you know, the obvious things, you know, the applicable darker stuff from The mm-hmm. Cure and Susie and Sisters of Mercy and stuff. But they play some newer bands. They actually do a festival. Uh, I've been to that. There's a band in L.A. called Horror and they spell all it's hard. It's it's pronounced horror, but all of the R's are with nines. So it's like <laughs> H.O. nine nine oh nine. They are a pretty awesome band. There's actually, I will say, I mentioned at the top of the show that it seems like even though it seems contradictory, given that people think of L.A. as sunshine and bright Mm -hmm. colors and the beach, there's always been a real element of dark music in L.A. And there's a lot of bands in L.A. that are newer that are carrying on this tradition, even if they would also probably issue the word goth. Uh, Drab Majesty is one. Mm Cold Cave, for sure. Horror, as I mentioned. They are, um, Ceremony is another one. They're from San Francisco, but they live here now. That are really kind of doing, I guess the term they would use now is dark wave. So much yeah. as like people, like after 1979, everyone was like, disco sucks, but right. dance music didn't go away. Right. There was still dance music. They just called it's it something. Fragmented. They just called could, it house, yeah. so they called it something else. Goth never went away. They just call it industrial or they call yeah. it dark wave or they call it so, post-punk. Alien Sex Fiend or uh, My Se- Life with the Thrill Kill Cold. Mm-hmm. I mean, I w- they get lumped into the wax tracks industrial thing, but they're very gothic. Oh, it's adjacent. It's all yeah. like it's all not one thing. It's just like, right. you know, um, you can be a goth and wear pastels, apparently. Not at Cloak and Dagger, though. No pastel <laughs> goths allowed. But let's talk about some of the 80s bands. Um I mean this literally. One of my favorite albums of the entire 80s, not favorite goth albums, favorite whatever albums, favorite albums, periods, mm-hmm. probably in my top 10. First and last and always by the Sisters of Mercy. Yeah. God, I love them. I love them so much. I have a Christmas ornament of uh, Andrew Eldritch on my Christmas tree. It's called Andrew Eld Grinch. <laughs> oh, nice. It's great. Um, I mean, that record's Black Planet. I'm sorry. If, I don't know if Sisters of Mercy don't call themselves goth, but you have a song called Black Planet about dancing in the acid rain. Right. Newsflash, yar. But that record is amazing. But what's interesting is later when they changed and expanded and they had Patricia Morrison, who mm-hmm. was in the bags and uh, Mary Davanian yeah. from The Damned and is in The Damned. Um, they, she played with them. And I don't know if you know that when they got a little more 
bigger sounding, I guess is the way I want to say it. And yeah. they did like this corrosion and vision thing. You know, they were working with like Jim Steinman. Jim Steinman, Mr. Now, Meatloaf. Now I'm speaking your language. Yeah, Mr. Meatloaf, uh, Bad Out of Hell, uh, Bonnie Tyler, Total Eclipse of the Heart, Air Supply, Making Love Out of Nothing at All. And they all. worked with Sisters of Mercy. And this corrosion and Dominion Mother Russia. and uh, It's funny because, you know, we've talked before in different podcasts about the idea um that a band has sold out or whatever. Right. And I didn't really know who Jim Steinman was when all this stuff came out. If I had heard that this guy with the credits that you just mentioned, the meatloaf and the Bonnie Tyler was working with Sisters of Mercy, if I'd known that at the time, yeah. it might've turned me off. I might've been like, what the hell? But I didn't know that. And now that I look back on it, I did. I do remember not liking that evolution as much as when they did First and Last and Always, mm-hmm. which is such I mean, if you haven't heard it, like seriously, it's a perfect album front to end and an underrated album. They're a band that absolutely um, only is kind of it's constricted to like one uh, generation. I don't think there's anyone under 40 who knows who Sisters of Mercy are. But now that I look back on the Vision Thing era, I'm like, yeah, I could see how this is a Jim Steinman thing. It was such a big. Who introduced them? Who had the idea? That's what I want to know. What's funny is, you know, if I ever interviewed Jim Jim Steinman, which sounds like it could happen, let's get him on the podcast. If I ever interviewed Jim Steinman, I'm sure people would be like, let's talk about Bad Out of Hell. Right. And I would be like, no, let's talk about Sisters (laughs) of Mercy. Let's talk about Lucretia, my reflection. Maybe because he did a, an album called Bat Out yeah, of Hell. That I, they were like, oh, that sounds like someone we'd like to work with. And then it was too late. They're like, ah, oh, shit. It's I, the, the, the The gut reaction is that someone at the label thought this would be a good match. But I, but it was a good match. Yeah, it was. But I have to wonder if Andrew Eldridge heard something and went, you know what? This guy could really make it sound cinematic and widescreen. And just monstrous and yeah. big because as we talked about earlier, like goth music was dramatic. Right. Who's more dramatic than Jim Steinman? That's, that's nutty, though, the fact that they work together. And of course, Susie, you know, was the patron goddess of all of this stuff. And I don't yeah. know how, again, if any of these people are, you know, that we're talking about are listening to it, they might take issue with the fact that they're being labeled as goth. But I mean, in general, just again, I don't mean to um, talk so much about the fashion and makeup, but when you talk goth, I don't think you can separate the two with such a visual. It's like with glam rock. You can't separate the fashion. I mean, every girl who was even goth adjacent was trying to do her makeup. And the Egyptian eye. And it's hard to do, man. I don't got time for it now. I used to spend like an hour doing my makeup then. But a song like Hong Kong Garden, I hear that and I just see uh, uh, girls and guys in the middle of the dance floor doing what we used to call the uh, catching butterflies dance. <laughs> where they just, you know, you're trying to catch butterflies in slow motion. Makes sense because Robert Smith totally does that in the video for Caterpillar. Yeah. He does the wave in the hand thing. Maybe he was trying to catch evolved caterpillars. Right. Yeah. And then there was uh, (laughs) the juggle, you know, where you just kind of. It was all very, you know, in 80s in general, we talked about this when we were talking about the fix and talking Mm -hmm. heads on the MTV podcast. A lot of the choreography and dancing, the club dancing Mm -hmm. in 80s was very arm driven. Yeah. You kind of didn't move your legs. You just waved your arms around in some 80s fashion. Right. I wonder why that is. Is it because the shoes were hard to 
I walking think, in the I 80s? think it was because uh, <laughs> back then, you know, pre-dating uh, apps, people actually went out mm-hmm. and the dance floor is packed and mm-hmm. you have X amount of space to uh, present your interpretation of the song. And so I'm going to catch butterflies. But it's interesting because Susie definitely came out of the punk movement. She was a member of the Bromley contingent, yeah. as I'm sure you know. And so a lot of the goth stuff, you know, The Cure were initially influenced by punk stuff that was happening when they formed in the late 70s. Their early stuff actually sounded very buzzcocksy, almost yeah. almost power pop. Not power pop, but like it had a punky Boy, pop sensibility. Boys Don't Cry is a power pop yep, tune. Everything on the mm-hmm. first album. Susie came out of the, the punk movement and that evolved. And what's interesting is in LA, that same thing was happening where, you know, we had someone like Patricia Morrison who was from mm-hmm. the bags or all of the, you know, the goth stuff that was happening kind of came out of the LA punk movement with people, you know, with Community FK. Right. You know, Patrick Mott started from that scene and also the Damn Stars, a punk band, and then they turned goth. So it's like, it's not, it's all connected. It's not that far removed. No. And we have to talk about Community FK. Please do. Here's I just how... interviewed Patrick Mott for like an hour, <laughs> so I'm well versed on the subject of this band. Here's how I know about Community FK growing up in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah, that's actually a good question. How did you? Every Halloween, MTV <laughs> would play spooky videos. That Elvira would introduce. Exactly. And she, I talked about this with Patrick. This was one of her go-to videos. They would always play Community FK, Something Some... Inside of Me Has Died. that was filmed uh, someone's backyard no nope. quarry somewhere where the lion's den at the griffith park zoo of, of course it was how goth is uh, that how azrael abyss and cersei <laughs> nightshade is that it's perfect so the reason why that video stuck with me first of all that bass hook is amazing uh the the, the bass line is just the best and the theatrical vocals the, 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 oh. that Song and that video encapsulate every single goth cliche that there could possibly be in they four were and a half minutes. They were so sincere. They're, right down to the bloody teardrop that's chroma keyed onto his face at the end. They were probably Azrael Biss's favorite band. I'm telling you. Uh, and that's why I liked it. And so that was one of those songs. And again, in prior podcasts, you've heard this uh, running theme. It was tough to find certain music back then. And I could never find that song on anything. And it's actually not even on um, streaming services. The other wow. day in pre- in preparing for um, for the interview with Patrick Mata, mm-hmm. I was looking on Apple Music and Spotify and whatever, trying to find these the, the songs. And like there's a couple songs on wow. compilations. OK, that song in particular, something time he has died is not on. I'm surprised Cleopatra Records hasn't jumped on a re-record. I know, they'll like reissue anything. Exactly. But I finally, they reissued it on CD very briefly and I was, and I found it like in a Best Buy or something bizarre like that. And the reason why I, I know, the reason why I treasure that CD so much is when I ended up digitizing all my CDs and selling them, I was able to sell it on eBay for like 200 bucks. Yeah, because it's rare. (laughs) And maybe that goes back to I'm saying, why have some of these artists like 
community of K is a very good and specimen not translated to younger generations is right. their stuff is I mean it's yeah, not really available. you can find the mm. cure and Susie and Bauhaus fine you right. can find Joy Division anywhere you can find them at Best, Best Buy anywhere but not um, definitely not specimen and community of K or Christian Death that's another right. LA one mm-hmm. it's very interesting to me that seems like you know London and LA were like sisters sisters of mercy cities <laughs> there you go and also we have to remember the cult started this way too yeah, Southern, Southern Death, Death Cult, cult. Mm-hmm. yeah but I you know it's interesting to me why do you think that this music given the fact that it did spawn some really big superstars that you know influenced current superstars and like I said you can hear it through even bands you know like AFI and in punk bands happening now why do you think it was disparaged historically uh is it the campiness of a video like community of what are you whining about yeah and yeah I mean the same reason why goth talk while being a love letter still works as a comedy sketch some of it is sorry kind of laughable but I would say this look at um Alternative rock of the 90s. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mopey Dopey. Grunge. Mopey Dopey. We had everyone from Radiohead saying, I'm a creep. Right. Beck saying, I'm a loser. Why don't you kill me? Everything Nirvana did, of course. You had, you know, Green Day saying, I got no motivation. You know, all of those bands not only continue to have audiences and they didn't come out that much later, you know, 10 years later, but they're all all the people I just mentioned and their music is very critically respected. Right. And it was a cliche at the time. Oh, all this nineties music. It's, you know, grunge was like the, you know, the logical continuation of goth, another type of music Mm -hmm. that appealed to angsty suburban kids who wanted to whine, but they, that music isn't looked back at as silly. And I wonder if that is, it really just comes down to a fashion thing. Fashion thing. and Fashion. Yeah. And <laughs> turn to the left. Turn to the left. And, and ashes to ashes, you know, also I think you could point to that as being a, a touch point for certain things in the subculture. That song and that uh, video uh, with more new romantic probably, but. You know, when you get down to suburban Ohio, new romantic and goth are pretty much lumped in together, unfortunately, even though now looking back, totally different head, totally. (laughs) What's interesting is I think that as goth or the elements and influences of goth continued in to the 80 from the 80s to the 90s and beyond it got a little tougher and a little scarier and um i guess for a lack of a better term a little less effeminate more macho yeah and that connected better like look at someone like Marilyn Manson. Mm -hmm. Yes, he was wearing lingerie and makeup, but there was nothing about him that seemed um, fey or pretty or wussy. He was scary. He was like a horror movie character, a comic book character. I would actually put Nine Nails in this category, who later collaborated with Bowie. But like they were tough. They were scared. The video for Closer was super scary. These were not artists that were necessarily... Um, crying. Right. They were the ones that were going to make you cry. They were like menacing. And maybe that element of being more scary and dangerous connected more, especially in the 90s, which was a very hard rock era, than people whining like Asriel Biss and crying and, wearing, and you know, looking um, uh, girlish, I guess. You could take Daniel Ash's lunch money. I don't <laughs> think you could take Trent Reznor's fight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That has a lot to do with it. And I think a lot of it, uh, the whole camouflage of the, the fashion and the look you mentioned, um, you know, 
less masculine tropes and things like that. I think it was armor for a lot of people who didn't fall into these uh, certain gender norms and goth and new romanticism uh, were actually ways to like, disguise yourself or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not ready to come out yet, but if I hide behind this black trench coat and festooned with uh, napalm death buttons or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I also, but like, as I said earlier, it really bummed me out, you know, when I was a kid that my mom and dad thinking that I, you know, gravitated towards this aesthetic, both lyrically and fashion wise, meant that I was um, troubled and they needed to be concerned because obviously a lot of the 90s gothic artists, particularly Marilyn Manson and Mm -hmm. Columbine, created that stereotype when actually I've talked for instance, I've talked to a lot of ours, but I've talked a lot to Lil Tolhurst from The Cure, founding member of The Cure about this, where I think, you know, a lot of this artist, a lot of this music um, saved lives. If you were yeah. an Asriel Biss type who lived in the suburbs, was wussy, wasn't going to be a football player or homecoming king, mm-hmm. worked at Cinnabon, had braces. The fact that you had this little tribe and this music that was very sensitive with someone like a Robert Smith or um, this isn't necessarily a goth artist, but like a Morrissey or someone like, you know, these kind of post-punk, mostly British artists um, that were sensitive. And that's why I think there's a connection to the emo world. Like, I think this saved a lot of lives. I think the majority of people who were wearing black trench coats and listening to the Cure and Joy Division in the 80s or uh, their not their logical successors in the 90s and 2000s were, you know, not wanting to shoot up any schools or harm anybody. They just wanted to feel understood and left alone that you know that's a fan- left alone yeah that's a fantastic point and by left alone i don't mean like a troubled loner i mean me and my friends are going to go to the club and dance to uh you know chris and cozy and leave us alone you know mm-hmm. you you guys oh, all right here's a real reach ready i'm ready snl sketch wells for boys do you have you ever seen this sketch? This it's, one I haven't seen. It's for, you know, boys and everybody has their normal toys, but sometimes your boy is a troubled creative type <laughs> and he needs his own uh, thing. And it's literally a wishing well and it's for whispering secrets and it's for, you know. <laughs> is this a recent sketch? It's for the last couple of years. Oh, I got to check this out. And there's one point where, you know, this other boy comes over and the mom's standing there and the other boy says, this thing is weird. And the mom turns to the the normal, quote unquote, boy and says, you have everything. This is his one thing. Aww. Let him have this one thing. This sounds like a nice <laughs> skit. Best. Yeah, let us have this one thing. And that's what goth is. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that the music was sensitive and tapped into that for mm-hmm. both boys and girls. But also, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast, the fact that it was, you know, kind of mystical and alien and, yeah. and sort of the idea that Transformative. like you Take might. Away. Yeah, you might live in a small town and have to work at the Cinnabon, but if, you know, you could be transported to this lair mm-hmm. where, you know, vampires and ghouls and demons and aliens and witches exist. And it is exciting. And it's not really all that different from the kids who watch Twilight movies now. No, and you, you tribes are the best way to describe it because you had in every major metropolitan area, you had a goth club or mm-hmm. industrial club or alternative club. You had a metal club club you had a rock club you had a pop club and everybody kind of stuck to their own and goth was like you know they were the weird kids in the lunchroom that there were four or five of them mm-hmm. but you know don't mess with them because they're the coolest kids in the school yeah, i'll tell you that they're the ones that ended up you know running microsoft 
<laughs> well, to wrap this up, um, we've talked a lot about the fashion and the culture and the tribalism around this. But musically, it was kind of all over the map. And a lot of the bands yeah. that became the most successful from the scene, The Cure being the biggest example, or even Susie, branched out musically. But what was the thread musically running things together? Some of the bands we've talked about, Sisters of Mercy and their mm-hmm. offshoot Mission UK, The Damned in their later years, Fields of the Nephilim, who I haven't talked about, Christian Death, Community of K, Southern Death Cult, Joy Division, Bauhaus, Specimen, The Cure, Susie. Um, lyrically, I think, you know, that was a big thing. But musically, I do actually think because we all are attracted to dark and doomy things and we always will be, there'll always be a market for that, whatever we label it. A lot of this music was very bass driven ba- and almost funky. Almost. And if people, you know, usually if someone's like hum a riff from a song, mm-hmm. you would hum a song and it would be the guitar riff mm-hmm. in any cure song like love song or, right. or it's it's not it's the bass forest is the biggest example it's right. always the bass like in you know um it's just like the dum dum it's like that's right. what you hum yeah and i would um you know it was almost like the guitar was more ornamental mm-hmm. the real riff the real driving thing of all this music was was the bass yeah it was all about that bass and that's it, the only time megan trainer will ever be referenced in the discussion about god <laughs> you're welcome people <laughs> cut that out no i'm just kidding you can leave it in uh but it, would you say that what were the musical elements you know we all know that these bands might have all kind of looked the same and yeah. had um you know a culture a subculture surrounding them but what musically tied them together in in the term that a lot of them are reluctantly taking on. You could, uh, you might have a, a weird reaction to this, but it was all danceable. With, with your arms. With your arms in a small at enclosed space, cave. you know, at the Bat Cave or the Nine of Clubs. Do you think that's why people only dance with arms? Because it was like the clubs were so packed so with goss small that they packed. had to keep their feet rooted to keep their space I on the dance floor. So they just wave their arms around. All my experiencing in those clubs mm-hmm. in the late 80s. Yeah, for sure. Because but, there was always like, you know, a sub basement of another club had a goth night and you had to go down there. <laughs> you had to go, it's yeah. fitting to have to go down to the right. the Hades-like basement exactly. for your goth fix. But you think you think goth music was the songs we've been talking about are danceable? Think, I mean, I know I danced to them. Think about it. Bella Lugosi's dead. It, you listen to it, it doesn't seem like a dance song. But what do you remember about hearing that song in a club? Everybody's swaying and doing their well, little interpretive I remember, thing. I remember Peter Murphy's hanging upside yeah, down at that. Coachella. But, there, but before that, yes, you're yeah. right. Uh, even a, a weird song, which may not be typically goth, but it was always played at every goth club I went to, uh, PTP, which was an offshoot of Alan Jorgensen's, you know, mm. one of his little, you know, rubber glove seduction. I don't know if you've <laughs> ever heard this song. No, it's once again, gr- you stumped me. you know synthesized tune but it's a big bass song it's all about moving and you can't listen to it and not go you know oh i like that song and and uh community fk something inside me has died that that bass line is bootsy-esque almost i mean uh it's sort of tangential but i mean hell new order it's all bass I would, Every bass player I know in the post-punk world will say they learned bass from Simon Gallup of The Cure and Peter Hook from Joy Division and New Order. It's, uh, rep- All of them. Pretend you never heard it before and it hasn't been overplayed a billion times. Listen to Blue Monday. Mm-hmm. That's a goth song. Like it or not. Well, it's not. a Yeah, it's a dark, it's sad. A, right.
if you heard it for the first time, you'd go, oh, you know, in, in that time, that was like a really dark song. And you had to go buy the 12 inch from an import store. That's what it was that this is mine. That You have everything. Let me have this one <laughs> Let thing. Let me have this one thing. I would say the vocals tied in together. They didn't all sing alike, but, uh, you know, a characteristic of basically most goth bands either sounded very um doomy and resonant in their vocals a la ian curtis mm-hmm. and you hear that in how paul banks and interpol right. i'm not saying he's trying to imitate ian curtis but you hear that <laughs> you're saying it maybe i like interpol uh or they sounded very like kind of wailing and sad like patrick from community of k or of course robert smith right. but you know no one's saying like the you know it it, it was a very stylized thing you yeah. know and it had to go with the lyrics so we all realized that goth never died goth never died <laughs> it just changed shape like a bat turning yes. in to a, i don't what am i even saying i don't know but like a bat turning into a dracula i'd like to think the spirit of chris Catan and molly shannon <laughs> haunted this entire podcast no in all seriousness though i you know goth didn't die it never went away it changed shape much it it influences everything it influences fashion you even see on runways now it influences a lot of bands and i think uh every generation even if pop is dominating the charts every generation is always going to be attracted to what they think is dark and glamorous Mm -hmm. and spooky and underground and will piss off their parents yes so i hope new generations the pastel goths of the world (laughs) listen to this podcast and learn something thank you everybody and this is the end of goth talk (laughs) <laughs> Tell us your spooky goth memories at Totally80s on Facebook and Instagram or at Totally80s.com slash podcast. I'm Lindsay Parker, and I was joined today by Azriel Biss, a.k.a. the immortal John Hughes. This was Totally80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. This episode is brought to you in part by Purina. Purina is dedicated to creating richer lives for pets and the people who love them. From helping older pets think like their younger selves to making cat ownership a possibility for more people than ever. Purina is helping pets thrive so they can live long, healthy, and happy lives. Purina has you covered for all your furry friends' needs, whether they meow or bark. From litter to treats to their best-in-class, nutrient-packed food with taste your pets will love. Purina's got your back at every stage of your pet's life. Your pet gives you the joy of the spring sunshine all year round. So today and every day, care for your pet with Purina. Your pet is Purina's passion. To learn more, head to Amazon.com backslash Purina.